welcome everyone thank you for joining us today it's pretty late here for me but um, it's mid-afternoon for everyone I guess and uh, good time to be on we're gonna keep this very short um, and take questions afterwards absolutely yeah and we have some you know a reasonable amount of ground to cover so let's kick this off without further ado one thing I wanted to cover just on the onset is the market reaction to the Fed and what this looks like because you know I had some back and forth with people today kind of looking at the first 10 seconds after something is done and thinking that's going to be the ultimate reaction and so we have these little spikes higher spikes lower it's important to contextualize this so let's talk a little bit about what happens ahead of a big event volatility catalyst the first thing is you have hedging you have people that go in and they get short via futures they might take on put positions and then as the event is happening and after it's passed, you have the unwinding of those hedges. And what does that mean? It means that when hedges are unwind, you get a bid, right? And so you see that bid coming back in. And with a lack of liquidity, that bid has a bigger impact on price discovery. And so that's something to take into consideration. When you see this wild chop, part of it is because really market makers are pulling back. And if you're looking at the bookmap stream that I have on YouTube, you can see it there. All the liquidity above and below basically disappears before the event. And as the event's happening, it's still pretty sparse until we get through it. And so when people are taking off their hedges, that creates an inflow of liquidity that spikes prices higher on a short-term basis. And that's what we like to call a head fake doesn't mean that prices can't go higher, but often is the case that people get caught on the wrong side of this because they're a little too eager. So to say that the reaction to Powell was bullish as he was speaking and prices were sort of vacillating all over the place, walk it back, wait till he's closer to done or after he's done to get a better idea of what the market is thinking. I think it's really important to contextualize this stuff from that point of view because as those hedges are unwound, it tends to give a short-term bid into the market. Excellent. I think that's something that everybody needs to understand. Um, the reflexive, you know, uh, reflexivity of what people do right after you know, the Fed rate hike is announced is not exactly uh, people trading, but rather people removing hedges, right? Do I have that You do, right? 100%. And that's a great way to break it down for everyone listening. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about uh, the pause, right? So did he actually say that they're going to pause? He did not. He, he gave no indication of a pause. Right. So, uh, in fact, I actually thought that, you know, he would keep the door open a little bit. And I think the language now is a little wishy-washy, right? So it's not very clear whether they are going to hike uh, in the next meeting. But it's most likely that they will keep uh, rates steady right now. However, he did very emphatically say, we don't know this right now. We need to see the data. But then again, he's talking about a couple of months of data, maybe two to three months of data. So that takes us beyond the June meeting. So what do you think about that? I think it's really interesting that we seem to have a more data-driven Fed here. He's been very uh, transparent about this, that really they don't know what the impacts are going to be of this credit tightening that we're seeing. And also 
what the trajectory of inflation may be. And if we pay attention to the data that we were getting during April, we saw prices coming up in ISM surveys, whether it's manufacturing or services. We also saw commodities prices rising, particularly energy is something I have a strong eye on because when oil prices rise and they stay high, it tends to pull inflation higher with it. We can think about that because oil really touches every part of our lives. So if the price of oil is going up and staying higher, everything that comes from energy begins to become more expensive. And I think that with Powell kind of saying, look, we don't think the trajectory of inflation is straight down. It's going to be a bumpy road and it's going to take a long time. He's trying to reset expectations a little bit. But let's go back a bit to credit tightening because you have a background in corporate finance. You you really know a lot about this area. And one thing that I wanted to hear you talk about for the benefit of myself and our audience is what this credit tightening really means and, and how we interpret it. Right. So uh, if we take a step back and just look at what's been happening over the last one year. So as you know, uh, rates have started going up massively. um, The banks really are in a position where they can make more money on the long end. Right. So they're lending on the long end. Now, prior to this rate hike cycle, we've had very, very low rates. So the way for banks to actually make money is to sort of. Um, lend out on the curve and uh, search for yield, right? So, and when banks search for yield, what they do is they tend to lend to, uh, let's say, poorer credits. So people who are not so highly rated, right? Because the higher rated you are, the better credit that you are, you have lower rates. So what the banks were doing is they were lending to smaller customers, customers with lower credit grades, and therefore they earned more of a margin on their loans there. So as soon as the Fed actually started raising rates, the banks were already tightening their lending standards. So if you look at um, the survey of loan officers, you will see that uh, lending standards were already tightening. And... Then you come to a situation where banks have started to, let's say, go under, right? So we had the situation with Silvergate Capital. We had the situation with Silicon Valley. And all of these just um, instills fear in the banking sector, right? So what they started to do is they started to realize that they need to raise deposits. We all know the situation with deposits. Banks were not paying a lot on deposits. The Fed highlighted this in their statements a few times, that banks were actually falling behind in raising their deposit rates. Back in January, when um, uh, Goldman Sachs, uh, sorry, uh, JP Morgan had their earnings call, Jamie Dimon was actually cribbing about this on the earnings call, saying that we're going to have to pay more for deposits now. And so this all actually came into play. Now, in order to raise deposits, the best thing a bank can do is once they get repaid on their loans, they don't, you know, lend it out again because they're lending at higher rates, whereas their deposit rates are lower, right? So in order to raise liquidity, what they can do is they can retain the principal that someone pays back on the loan in order to raise liquidity. And when you're not lending, conditions are tightening, right? Because we know that credit is essential for growth in the economy. Banks uh, lend to every part of the economy. And 
by pulling back this money into the system, keeping it in the bank rather than lending it out, you're tightening conditions. The net result of this is simply that, you know, people can take out or companies can take out loans for CapEx. Companies can take out loans for, you know, working capital. And, you know, over the last couple of years, companies have even taken out loans for buybacks. So even that will probably see a drop. And we know when these things come down, when we don't have enough lending in the system, when we don't have reinvestments, and when we don't have buybacks, companies suffer. I think that's a really important point, too, because if we just zoom out a little bit, this is a credit-driven economy. There is a lot of borrowing today to pull forward tomorrow's demand, and that's one of the ways that we've seen growth over the last several decades. And we're seeing that trend begin to reverse, that those uh, many years where we had lower highs and lower lows of rates may be behind us. And now there's a bit of an unwinding process that's happening. And for an economy that, you know, where consumers borrow to pull forward demand, where businesses borrow to expand and and try to grow and hire and otherwise, where the government borrows and really is one of the most prolific borrowers, especially of late, when that credit becomes tighter, it has a deleterious impact on economic growth. And certainly we could see a bit of that starting in quarter one's GDP, where we saw only 1.1% growth. And yeah, consumers started to come back a little bit. But on the other side of it, this is a pretty weak reading. And Powell made a point to say that really, from his point of view, he can't get a beat on how big of an impact this is going to have, right? It's more of a set it, wait and see how this tightening of credit conditions has an impact on demand, on inflation, and how that affects their policy trajectory. I thought it was interesting that he continued to be very adamant about 2% PCE, the Fed's favorite flavor of inflation. They're not relenting. They're not talking about two and a half, three percent. You know, a reporter asked him very directly about that. And he said, look, that's not our target. That's not our goal. We don't want to be talking about a higher level of inflation being acceptable. And if you hear three percent in a vacuum, it doesn't sound so bad. But when you start to compound rising prices at 3% year over year, year over year over year, it actually starts to become a huge problem for the purchasing power of people. And while we might welcome 3% after the last couple of years we've had, it's not where we want to be moving forward, right? And I think that's important. What did you make, though, of their thoughts regarding inflation, the sort of unsteady trajectory moving lower over time, and that being one of the kind of goalposts that he wants to see before they even talk about when they might do rate cuts. It feels like we're not going to see any cuts this year. No, and I think he was very clear about that as well, that, you know, the rate cuts are dependent totally on, you know, meeting their targets. And their target is 2%. They're firm on that. And I think what what I found quite interesting was that he, he did talk a little bit about certain things being sticky still. So let's talk about wages. Now, he said very clearly that wages are not driving or are or at least are not the principal driver of inflation. And I think that's very important. It's good to know that he thinks that there is no wage spiral. However, he still thinks that the wage level is too high. Um, it's running at around 5% still. We saw the employment cost index and it, it's actually re-accelerated just a smidge. 
Um, but we're still at a very high level and he wants to see that around 3%. So that's one. And then the second thing that he said that was important, I think, was, you know, the core um, services inflation, the, the, the services part of the inflation that has been his concern for the last two or three meetings. He doesn't see the, that coming down just yet. So that part still remains sticky. I think shelter inflation also remains a little sticky. We should be seeing it come down sometime this month. So we probably see that in next month's data. But at the same time, there are other factors happening in the economy which suggest that, you know, rents could start to reaccelerate again because of you know mortgage rates remaining high. So people are deferring purchases of houses and as well, banks tightening their lending standards means banks are not willing to lend even at the higher mortgage rate, which means people can't take out mortgages, people can't buy houses even if they want to. And while that will kind of pop the housing bubble, um, it still it, it gives rise to a situation where you will see more renters, which might push up rental. It's an interesting situation just to have a side conversation on housing as well, because it's almost created a, a quandary for anyone that has an existing home and wants to look at buying a new one, right? Because if you have an existing home and you have a sweetheart mortgage where you're paying like two and a half, three and a half percent, why would you want to move and have to pay over 6%? Like your cost of living is going to go up quite a bit. And so a lot of this existing home stock is, is pretty small. And that's led to prices sort of staying sticky. But at some, t at some point, it really sounds like we're on the same page here that, you know, this will break. And it's funny because F Powell was the first Fed chair I've ever heard that called this a housing bubble. We have never heard that from any Fed chair before. I thought that was a pretty refreshing bit of candor, especially coming from the Bernanke era, where we were very, very obviously in one of the biggest housing bubbles in history at the time. And he said, nothing to see here. Housing is fine. There's no danger to prices really going down before we saw one of the biggest losses in home values and one of the biggest housing-driven crises we've ever seen. This Fed seems to be a little bit more honest about it assessment. He's also identified the froth in markets during previous meetings and how he feels that that sort of artificial wealth effect has allowed more people to pull out of labor force participation, which still remains at a disconcertingly low level. I think one of the ways eventually that equilibrium is reached in the jobs market, where there's about 1.5 jobs open, for every one insured unemployed person seeking work is not just seeing those openings fall, but also seeing the number of people seeking work rising up, right? So we can reach a point where it's one to one or even something where there's less jobs available than the number of people seeking work. And that'll, that'll work towards the idea of tampening down that wage growth. If it's a less competitive market, then there's less need for wages to rise to attract people to come to work. So I think it all kind of, it, it comes down to the fact that, like he said, there's a lot more work to do. I think that's a good way to get to where they want to get to without having unemployment. Um, but it's quite likely that 
that really doesn't happen that way. Because by the time you have your demand and supply come into a balance, I think we're going to see these tightening conditions take force. And I think we're going to see a lot more in terms of small businesses going out of, um, you know, going out of business and then um, people getting laid off. Um, so I think unemployment does start to rise. I, I don't mean to be pessimistic, but if you ask me which comes first, I think if I think it's unemployment comes first. And I think he knows this and he, he is actually in one way, I wouldn't say happy, but he's pleased. He seems pleased that, you know, the tightening, the lending conditions tightening is doing his work for him and that they don't necessarily have to hike rates any longer or you know, aggressively in order to achieve what they want to achieve. I think that's a really good point. I also think it's important because we live in a world of instant gratification where attention spans are short as they could ever be, that we need to realize, as he said today, there are lagged and variable impacts of monetary policy. They only started their hiking in March of 2022. They only really started QT in June, and that was sort of junior-sized QT before they really scaled it up higher to the current run rate of $95 billion a month. And those lag and variable impacts are just really beginning to hit the economy and just really beginning to have a more meaningful impact on financial conditions. And this is a Fed that says, hey, not only could we potentially hike again, but we're likely to leave rates at this higher plateau for some time to come. And I think it's important to realize that even leaving rates high is in and of itself a form of tightening because more and more businesses and people and even governments taking out debt have to finance or refinance at higher rates. There's the concept of cumulative tightening. I think that was a Lael Brennard uh, coin of phrase, but it's true. We have these impacts that accumulate over time. And the other thing that I wanted to add into that thought is that there's not really a lot of discussion about quantitative tightening, either from the Fed or really from financial commentators, but I still think it's a pretty big deal. The runoff of this balance sheet largesse that we've seen for the better part of over a decade is a pretty big deal. There has been a strong correlation between the aggregate size of major global central bank balance sheets and the performance of risk assets. And now we're starting to see that come down. And with it, it's likely, and this is really a Fed policy goal, the Fed put is gone, right? They want to see asset prices come down across the board, whether it's stocks, real estate, whether it's things like bonds or even crypto. They, they really need to see some of these artificial wealth effects come down. That's another form of policy tightening, and it helps to effectuate their goals. So I think it's important to look at this with a bit of nuance and patience and look at their trajectory and note that not only are they not potentially done with hiking, but because they want to leave rates for a higher at, at a higher level for a longer period of time, that in and of itself has impacts. And this is a departure from the past three or four tightening cycles where they'd reach their terminal rate and very quickly take a 180. But during those last cycles, there was a big, big difference, and that was inflation. We didn't have it then. We do now. And that's the other part of their dual mandate. And of course, on the other side of that coin, we have a historically low unemployment rate. So they have cover to keep this policy framework tight. Right. Um, and speaking about the stock market, 
Um, so he did say inflation won't come down very quickly. And so I don't think that they're modeling um, for them reaching the 2% goal anytime soon. But the other important thing that he did say is corporate margins will decline. And now this is something that we've been discussing for a while as well, right? So you have demand destruction, at, you know, overall. So that's revenues coming down. But at the same time, you will also see corporate margins coming down. And that will sort of hit companies and that will hit earnings, right? So this earnings recession that we keep talking about, it's happening already. We're seeing negative earnings growth, but it's quite likely that we see this go on for yet another quarter if, not if, but when margins start to come down. So it's not likely that we see a scenario where this continues. This this level of, you know, let's say, uh, buying frenzy continues in the market. So at some point, we will have to, you know, re- reconcile with reality. And we will have to sort of, um, that will have to flow through the market, through the stock price. And it's something that we should remember and be careful of. Yeah, I think that's a good point. When we go back and we look at over 100 years of data, what we tend to see is that the bottom really happens about 10 months after the first cut, right? And why is the Fed cutting? Typically, they're cutting because something has broken and they need to respond by easing financial conditions. And in a debt-driven economy, that helps to stimulate some growth. It helps to stimulate a bid for assets. And we're so far away from that point that I think it's important not to try to front run the Fed. Someone wiser than me once said, don't fight the Fed. And I think it's good advice from a large perspective, because think about what we heard January 4th of this year, or I'm sorry, of last year. Time flies. We heard Neil Kashkari, former Uber dove, say that they're going to do QT and they're going to do it aggressively. And that really marked the top of the market. And that was one of those don't fight the Fed hallmark moments where you have a Fed official who's typically very accommodative turning 180 degrees and saying, no, actually, we need to go further and faster and really try to get ahead of this inflation problem. And when the market started to digest that big macro pivot, That took a lot of appetite away from risk assets. And I think it's important to take that into context that we've never gone back to those all-time highs that, you know, we still have a situation where risk assets are probably mispriced. This market continues to believe that the, the cut is just coming right around the corner and that the pivot's going to be bullish. And I would just take a lot of that with the context of prior pivots are typically not bullish, that we haven't seen the trough in the economy or in earnings. And so we probably haven't seen the trough in the market either. And the big picture view of this is that raising rates as much as they have and getting to this environment where companies are starting to say, okay, the economy is slowing. Wage costs are still very high. My cost of capital is much higher if I can get it at all. I'm not going to be increasing production into this environment. So one of the ironic facets of high rates is that it actually does for the next cycle increase the potential 
of some degree of structural inflation because supply becomes less elastic. There's less discovery of new assets. In fact, last year during 2022, there was the least amount of new oil discoveries in about 70 years. So it's just something to contextualize. And this is something that Aisha and I will talk about more on Macrovisor, how we're sort of shifting from an era of abundance of capital and resources to an era of some degree of scarcity. But let's also talk a little bit about what we see coming ahead. This idea that we may see a recession in the back half of this year. It seems to be more likely. The New York Fed has a recession probability indicator. It just hit over 57%. That's the highest level in 40 years. That's one. Second is we have 12 months of leading economic indicators in the negative. And anytime that's happened after 1960, where there's just six months, a recession tends to follow later on. And the third is this sort of steepening yield inversion between the twos and tens. Typically, as that steepens into positivity, it tells us a recession is more imminent. And finally, as you touched upon, credit conditions are tightening. And when we look back at these cycles of credit conditions tightening, when they've tightened this much, a recession is all but inevitable. Right, so I think, the forecast is for a mild recession, although Powell doesn't seem to think so. But here's the thing. So when you look at uh, the GDP growth that we saw um, in quarter one, it was mostly or largely driven by government spending, right? Now, again, here we have a situation where the government is spending to keep or let's say to prop up uh, the GDP somewhat. Um, but this can't really go on because when you have expansionary fiscal policy that is contradictory to contractionary monetary policy, you're going to be in a situation which is unpleasant, to say the least. And it is going to actually, let's say, lengthen um, the grief because what you're left with is even if you don't have a recession, what you're left with is a very, very low rate of growth. So you can technically avoid that negative number um, in GDP growth. But then if you're below 1% growth in GDP, that, that's really akin to a recession. And that carrying on for a longer period of time is just as painful, if not more. So I think one of the things that they're probably aiming for is to let GDP stay at this very, very low level in order to sort of clear the inflation situation and not having to tighten for, or rather not having to ease and not having to cut rates. So this is all like a pathway to get them to where they want to get. But in the meantime, it is going to cause you know difficulties in the economy. Unfortunately, unless we do have a recession, we won't have all of this cleared out very quickly and we won't go back to a situation where we have, uh, you know, stable markets again. So right now, the kind of markets that we're having are not stable, right? We're, we're seeing crazy kind of markets and nothing is kind of making sense. So for what it's worth, I think we actually need a recession in order to reset the markets in order to reset the economy and you know reset inflation and bring uh, lending rates back down to a decent level which is palatable and which is good for growth and which can also keep inflation at bay 
Absolutely. And you know what? There's, in, in, if we really want to talk about it just from the perspective of free markets and capitalism, recessions are necessary. It's not a dirty word. This is how we flush out the excess, like Aisha was saying. And it's how we rebalance. And it's how opportunities happen as well. In a recession, in a bear market environment, as we start to see that trough, that's where some of the best investing opportunities also come about. So there is a silver lining to getting away from the excess of over a decade of near emergency level monetary policy almost the entire time. There is a, a way through this. There's going to be some unpleasantness. There will be some pain along the way. But that's healthy. That's how markets are supposed to function, not with the Fed constantly coming in and sort of underwriting all the risk and making sure that uh, you know things don't necessarily correct or that we don't have real price discovery. So I would say that a recession, even though it's not a pleasant experience, it comes with opportunities. And it's also something that we need. We need recessions just like we need an expansion. And you can't have one without the other. So I hope that's helpful to everyone. Now we want to shift over to questions and answers. So if you have a question, please raise your hand, request to be a speaker. We'll take questions from people for the next, say, 15 minutes or so, and then we're going to start to wrap up. And people should know it's like midnight where Aisha is in Dubai. So we are, we are, it's pretty late. I want to thank you, Aisha, for being here so late, but it is pretty late there. So we want to make sure we respect her time. So if you have a question, please raise your hand. And remember, there's no silly questions. If you have anything that you want to ask us, we're happy to answer those questions. Well, to be fair, I am happy to be here and I'm happy to be doing this, even though it is late. It is my job and um, I am pleased. <laughs> I, well, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to sound a beat. So well, <laughs> delighted to have you with us here. And uh, Jero, we, we see you've requested to speak. I'm just going to add you as a speaker here. As I do that, because it takes a second to connect, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and remind you this is brought to you by Macrovisor. You can check us out on the web at macrovisor.com. We've got free content and we've got premium content. And our goal is really to help educate people, make macro easier to understand and more actionable. But without further ado, Jero, go ahead and unmute your mic. And uh, what's on your mind? What's your question, my friend? Yeah, hi. Hi there. Um, I just shared uh, a tweet in the Nest, yeah, um, where I uh, plotted, um, uh, because I'm sure that you guys know anyway, right, that the Fed in every cycle, when they wanted to bring inflation down, they actually raised the fund rates above the headline inflation rate, right? And today is finally the day, yoo-hoo. Um, and um, the problem, though, is that Every time they uh, they try to do it, actually we we ran actually into a recession, right? So the Fed knows that a soft landing is very tough and hard, right? But I'm just wondering why why do you think the market is um, how do you say is kind of surprised about the credit tightening and GDP going negative a little bit because that's kind of a feature of what they're trying to achieve, right? I mean. In order to bring inflation down, you need to have GDP flat or even um, what do you say, or even negative for a quarter or two, and then and then also and also to bring the unemployment rate up. I mean, unemployment is still at record low. So, so I'm just wondering. So, what do you think? Like, will the market panic when unemployment, uh, how do you say, kind of rises from 3.5 to 3.7 percent? 
uh, because it's just a feature of what they want to achieve, right? Absolutely. And you know what? It's so nice to um, listen to someone say this so nicely and, you know, lay it out in a way that is actually normal. You're right. This is normal. But what we've been seeing is abnormal, right? So we've been in a period where everything we've been seeing is abnormal. This, by now, according to everything that you've said, you're absolutely right. By now, we should have seen a much higher rate of unemployment. We're seeing banks collapse, yet we're seeing the unemployment rate stay at 3.5%. This has never happened, ever, in any economy. So you're absolutely right that this isn't this is odd and it shouldn't come as a surprise but i think you know what happens when um we become complacent right so we've been seeing 3.5% 3.5% and i think if it does start to move up the markets will take notice and i'm not going to say it will come as a surprise as such but i think people are still expecting a very very low rate of unemployment so Coming back to what you laid out, you're absolutely right. None of this should come as a surprise. If you study history, if you study what's happened in the past, um, none of it should come as a surprise. But we are in a very unusual situation. Not everything is very balanced. And uh, I think we should just take it one step at a time. Yeah, well said, Aisha. I agree 100%. I, I do think that we are in uh, sort of an unprecedented period of time. Really, the greatest monetary policy experiment is in our rear view. And now the unwinding of that experiment is what we're dealing with now and what is ahead of us. And these are a lot of unrealized consequences. And it's going to be a period where even the Fed themselves don't really know what's to come. The UK House of Lords did a study some time ago in 2021 asking, is QE a dangerous addiction? And one of the points they made is that no central bank anywhere in the world has ever fully normalized monetary policy post-QE. So we're really navigating completely uncharted waters. We have really no firm reading on what this looks like. But what we can say is we've taken the patient off of this sort of all these different support mechanisms, and yet they're still sick. So we don't know what that's going to look like, right? We don't know what the economy is going to look like on the other side of this. But what we can say is at least in other tightening cycles, particularly when there's a globally coordinated tightening from many central banks, it tends to weaken the economy. And there's these lagged and variable impacts that that kind of make it so that you don't see the results as immediately as maybe people would expect today, where you click a button and you can buy something or sell something. This is not like that. This isn't the Fed clicking a button and putting us into recession. This is the Fed changing their policy framework. And over time, those impacts are realized. So I would say, yeah, we could expect higher unemployment, probably well over 4%. And it won't be great for the American consumer who's already struggling, where two-thirds are living paycheck to paycheck and 40% are behind on their bills. Consumers are supposed to be the biggest part of the economy, and they really have stepped back meaningfully. And as unemployment rises and as some of those stresses for consumers rise, I think we're going to see more of that unfortunate pain. But that's the only tool the Fed has. The Fed cannot, through QE or, or, or QT or anything they're doing, bring about more commodities, bring about more supply. They can only try to reduce demand. And 
as I should point out, they're kind of fighting the legislature. We've had the Inflation Reduction Act. We've had the Chips and Science Act and other kinds of aggressive spend that stimulated demand as the Fed's trying to subdue demand. We also have some states and countries that are giving inflation relief checks, which ironically don't do that. They actually do quite the opposite. They stimulate more robust demand into a period of tight supply. So I would say we're going to have to be all very open-minded and continue to be students of the market and the economy. No one knows where this ultimately goes. So if anyone else has any questions, please raise your hand. We're happy to answer any questions you all have. We appreciate everyone tuning in and being a part of this audience. Jero, sure, go ahead with a follow-up. Yeah, if there there is nobody else, then I have a follow-up. <laughs> um, yeah, I wanted to know your opinion about why the Fed is using CPI, which is very lagging, as you just said before, right? And also focusing, uh, because these are very, very smart people, right? And they also know that owner's equivalent. Rent is super lagging. Uh, so in my opinion, actually, the Fed would already consider... Um, um, how do you say, like a cut if inflation came down, let's say, towards 3.5%, right? But if they communicated that to the market, right? If they said, uh, market, you guys, um, how do you say, you guys can already prepare for a cut if we hit 3.5%, right? Then the problem is that inflation would go up again because all the companies would start buying again, right? So, uh, so I believe that the Fed is kind of using the lagging indicator in order to, um, how do you say, in order to slow down the market or put them on hold. Uh, what do you guys think? Excellent point. I think you are on the right track here because you're absolutely right. So if, if the Fed tomorrow says that, you know what, we, we're just going to stop at 3%, you know, according to PCE or according to CPI, then we know when they're going to stop, right? So they've always tried to keep this a little open. Now, we know that it's supposed to be 2%, but we also know reaching that 2% is, it's a long timeline. Um, and just like today, if you, if you looked at what they said about, you know, pausing, they didn't use the word pause. Even when they he was asked the question, he was trying to be very diplomatic about it, right? So they, they're not going to outright come, come, come outright and say that, look, this is where we stop, because you're absolutely right. It, it will quite likely make inflation go up again, and it will reverse a lot of the things that they have already done. Exactly right. It's it's a game of managing expectations. There's a lot of psychology that goes into us. It's, there's no hard science. And I think that the Fed is doing everything they can to try to make sure that, you know, the market hears the message, that the economy hears the message. And whether or not they're done hiking, they leave the door open because that makes people a little less certain. They say, we're going to watch the data because then the market has a cue that's not just the Fed saying, if this, then this. And that gives them some nuance. They're also telling us, and, and they don't know any more than we do, that credit conditions could tighten more because of what's happening in the banking system. So we have one more, actually, I'm sorry, we have two more people asking to uh, ask a question. Market Warrior, welcome. What's your question? Yeah, hi. Um... I wanted to know what's your opinion on the equity markets if it's uh, pricing in 
uh, Fed cuts uh, and a recession? And then my second question is, why do you think uh, the rates market is pricing in Fed cuts despite uh, the chair pushing back and committee not really like really outright uh, saying that that's their base view or that's something they're looking to do this year? Sure. Yeah. Really great questions there. I think for the first question, my inclination is no. The equity market is not pricing in the resolve of this Fed. It is pricing in rate cuts that are I think, premature in terms of a time horizon. Uh, I don't think that the Fed is going to cut rates in less than until either inflation reaches their target, which is likely, as Powell said, to take quite a long time, but also in less than until something breaks. Because really, the other kind of dual mandate I like to joke about is the Fed creates bubbles and they destroy bubbles. And right now they're in the bubble destroying phase and they really haven't thoroughly destroyed it. Um, the, the other side of it, um, I would say, is just, you know, the Fed funds futures market has been, if, you, if you've been watching it for the last year and say five months now, it tends to sort of be wishy-washy. That is to say, the last several bear market rallies we had in part were predicated on this imminence of a Fed pivot. This idea that a, a cut was just around the corner, they're almost done, we're going to go right back to printing again. And this time seems to be similar in the sense that there's these cuts being priced in that don't seem to be on the immediate horizon. And we saw this in spring of last year. We saw it in summer of last year. We're seeing it again now. I still feel like this is likely a bear market rally within the context of a larger bear cycle. And that unless and until we really see the trough of the recession, the trough of earnings, I don't think we've seen the bottom in equities quite yet. Yeah, unfortunately, I think, you know, we all suffer a little bit from recency bias, right? So the last time Fe um, Powell did this, and it was him as the chair, um, he backtracked and he cut rates, right? So I think people still remember that. And I think there was some idea or some notion that he's going to do the same thing this time as well. They weren't uh, prepared for how aggressive they were. Uh, the Fed was going to be. And I think a bit of that as well led to what happened at Silicon Valley Bank and all these other banks. So uh, a couple of things that you may have seen out there where people started talking about these banks not hedging the risk of you know rates going up and stuff like that. And I do think part of the reason the banks did not hedge some of their risks is that they didn't believe the Fed was going to raise rates, you know, by 5% in such a short period of time. So it was, it's a little bit of an unbelievable situation. We haven't had this in 40 years. So, and 40 years is a long time. We don't even remember what happened a year ago. So I think people are, you know, I think they didn't believe the Fed. And I, I wouldn't just say the market. I wouldn't just say retail. I think institutions and every everyone across the board didn't really think that the Fed would hike this aggressively. Absolutely. Got it. Thank you. 
Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for the great questions. Um, I see the last person who had their hand up uh, took their hand down. So I think we've answered all of the questions for everyone out there. Uh, we really appreciate everyone tuning in. And this was brought to you by MacRevisor.com. Check us out on the web. We'll also have the recording of this available as our podcast, which you can get at any major podcast place, Apple, Amazon, Google, etc. But in closing, just wanted to really express our sincere gratitude for your interest in what we're doing. And Aisha, do you have any sh- uh, closing thoughts you want to share? with everyone no just thank you so much for joining us i mean this was i think the first spaces we've done in a very very long time and we really appreciate everyone joining us.